in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the CEO Raider podcast. It's your host, John Mayetta. If you like this podcast, leave us a five-star rating or review at Apple Podcasts. You know, I don't often comment on sports. I don't think I ever have on this podcast. But as a podcaster, I listen to other content, politics, business, within business, broadly defined, investing, um, technology, primarily technology, and occasionally sports. And within the world of sports, there are three people I can think of off the top of my head that think about sports like an investor. And they talk about core investing principles like risk-reward, ROI, long-term value. And they use those principles or they apply those principles to things like player evaluations, contract negotiation, organizational structure. And those three people would be Bill Belichick, active coach, GM of the New England Patriots, Mike Lombardi, former senior exec with the Pats and a number of other NFL teams, and Sam Hinkie, former GM of the 76ers, the Philadelphia 76ers. Two of those three aren't employed by a uh, sports franchise. Sam Henke sort of reinvented the, the GM position, if you will, and completely repositioned that franchise to enjoy the success it's enjoying today. And Lombardi's just one of the smartest people in the NFL. And it just sort of shows you what a, a network each of those leagues are in terms of uh, uh, a network of relationships, a network where the best don't necessarily get to, to lead organizations. You have to be part of the clique. And I wonder if that's going to change. I wonder if the value of these franchises as they increase from a couple hundred million, which is what an NFL team went for in the early, mid-1990s, to multiple billions today. If as the dollar value of these franchises explodes, and as they turn over, do these new owners, many of whom are hedge fund founders, venture capital founders, financial types, if you will, Will these people bring on league execs or friend, op, you know, operating execs who think about org structure and team building the way an investor would? Because there are a number of these skills, the, the ones I mentioned earlier, in principles, investment principles that are transferable. All right? They transfer from the capital markets to team building, franchise building, org structure, player selection. And it's just fascinating to me that with the amount of capital that is deployed in those respective leagues today, the NFL and the NBA, that it's just not a, a must that team presidents and GMs be well-versed in investing principles. For, for sure, you need people that understand the game, but that doesn't mean that that person should be running the entire organization. If you don't understand contract structure, if you don't understand value and how to value, right? what a player costs in 2018 or what that player is going to cost in 2019, that's not value. Understanding value is what's, what's the lifetime value of a player over the duration of their contract. Contract value compared to that player's on-field production, their output, compared to those two metrics as applied to other players in the league at their position. That's how you calculate value. Just like you would calculate free cash flow in a variety of companies within a particular industry vertical. Same concept, same principles apply. So Tariffs 101. I was reading uh, an article today about the latest series of, of tariffs that Trump is, is threatening the markets with. And you know, it's a political issue. 
It's also a capital markets issue. It's also a leadership issue. It also touches uh, companies, not just the broad markets, but obviously companies. It touches consumers. So we cover a lot of this stuff on the podcast. I'll keep away from the political stuff, but here's why tariffs are bad. So I'll use my famous socks example, athletic socks. So you, you purchase a pair of socks, and you want, you're in the market for socks, and typically you purchase socks from China. Let's say you pay $10 a pair. Your alternative is to pay $50 a pair from an American manufacturer. Uh, all else held equal. They're the same pair of socks. So naturally, you, you opt for uh, the pair manufactured in China. It's the same pair of socks as the American pair, but it only costs $10 versus $50. And now there's a tariff. Could be a Trump tariff, could be an Obama tariff, really doesn't matter. Now, there's a, a tariff that's going to be applied to the, the Chinese manufacturer. And so the price of those socks is going to increase from $10 to 30 So now your two choices are socks from the American manufacturer at $50 or purchase socks from the Chinese manufacturer at $30. You're still going to purchase from the Chinese manufacturer because it's still $20 cheaper than the American alternative. But it's now $20 more expensive than it was previously. So who loses? The American consumer loses. Or anybody who's going to purchase those uh, socks, regardless of where they may live. But let's assume we're talking about a, a U.S. citizen. Um, so the American consumer is who loses. The American company doesn't doesn't win. The Chinese manufacturer still sells a, a less expensive pair of socks. Let's say the tariff was for ninety dollars. So now your two options are a fifty dollar pair of socks made by an American manufacturer, or a hundred dollar pair of socks made by a Chinese manufacturer. So in that scenario, you're probably going to opt for. The $50 pair of socks made by the American manufacturer. Who wins, who loses in that scenario? Well, you could say the Chinese manufacturer loses a little bit because now their product is more expensive than the comparable American product. And American consumers are now going to purchase the product made by the American manufacturer. So you could say the Chinese firm manufacturer loses. You could say the American manufacturer wins because now they're going to enjoy uh, demand demand flow that comes to them as a result of being the low-cost producer. So maybe those thousand employees who work at that factory in the U.S. Uh, will, will benefit. But who is the biggest loser? The biggest loser remains the American consumer because the American consumer is still paying an incremental $40 as compared to what they were paying previously. Pre-tariff, they were paying $10 for a pair of socks. Post-tariff, they're now paying $50 for a pair of socks. So great, 1,000 employees at the, Amer at the American manufacturer are, are, are better off, but the other you know, 300-some-odd million Americans are worse off because they have to pay an extra $40 for socks. So the American consumer is consistently a loser when we, we're in a market where there's a trade war and tariffs. And we're always going to consistently be the loser as the American consumer because we are very rarely the low-cost provider. 
Why are we the low cost provider? Why are we hardly ever the low cost provider? Well, largely because of healthcare. Largely because healthcare in the United States is more expensive than anywhere else, and I've talked about that previously. And those healthcare costs get baked into the cost of goods sold and passed on to the American consumer. It's true in the automobile industry, true for, for every industry uh, here in the U.S. So the real way to win a trade war is to create intellectual property that consumers want that can't be found anywhere else. So in other words, create companies that create new IP that's in demand. That's one. And if it's intellectual property, if it's a low value added service, um, you know, try to become the low cost provider where you don't have IP differentiation. And in order to become the low cost provider, you've got to figure out a way to get the cost of healthcare down because that's what makes our goods more expensive than the rest of the world. That's all for now. See you next time. Oh, oh, oh.